Well, what a joy it is to be with you this morning. I bring you greetings from Warnall Road Baptist Church, where I'm a member. Uh, the congregation there has already met today, uh, but they've prayed for you. Uh, even as I've gone out to preach here, uh, they have prayed for our time together, uh, and I give you their greetings. Uh, I'm, I'm so grateful for Hanley, for Terrence, for the invitation to come and preach. Uh, when I joined you guys for breakfast, it really wasn't trying to get like some kind of speaking invitation, but, uh, but thank you. Thank you for inviting me to be with you this morning. Uh, and I, I serve as one of the professors at uh, Midwestern Seminary. You know, uh, as someone who serves in a Southern Baptist institution, uh, I'm grateful for the way you contribute to the work that goes on. Um, you know, the SBC is far from perfect. Uh, but there is so much to be encouraged by in, in all that's going on. Um, I have the privilege of, of teaching at a seminary, and it's so encouraging to see how the Lord is using uh, our school to, to equip thousands of men and women to serve Christ all over the world. Uh, and, and literally, we have students from over 60 countries uh, attending classes at our school. And, and your cooperation with the SBC is part of what makes that possible. Uh, so, so we should be encouraged by that. Uh, and just being with you here this morning, I mean, I've been uh, part of SBC churches now for, you know, over 15 years. Uh, I, but I grew up in the Chinese church. Uh, and coming here is like, it's like a homecoming for me. Uh, it feels so nostalgic being here. <laughs> I feel like I'm with my people, you know, and I just, I just love that. Uh, and I love it that you guys are, are, are with us in the work of the SBC. Um, I just want to, I'm so glad to meet you. And if there's ever any way I can be of help to you, uh, if, if you have questions about seminary, um, questions about what's going on in the SBC, uh, I guess I'm sort of like an insider, even though I'm, 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 I don't feel like one. Uh, but if I can be of help to you, you have, you have a personal contact now. Uh, and uh, I'm glad, please feel free to reach out. Um, you can get my email from Terrence or from Hanley, uh, and I'm glad to be of service to you. Well, let, now as we get ready to, to look at God's word, let's pray once more. Would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would impress upon us uh, the, the glorious truth that Christ is coming back, uh, that we are stewards of all that we've been given. Lord, we pray that you would open your word up to us and open us up to your word. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in the famous series, The Lord of the Rings, uh, the kingdom of Gondor is without a king. You know, long ago, as the story goes, uh, the king's son rode out to battle, and he never returned. And so his fate was unknown, and there was no heir to the throne of Gondor. So the stewards of Gondor were put into place to rule on behalf of the king. You know, rather than sitting on the throne, these stewards sat on a simple black chair at the foot of the throne. Uh, they did not wear a crown, they did not hold a scepter, and they watched over the throne until it could be reclaimed by a true king of Gondor, an heir of the ruling line. Well, when we come to the events of the story, almost a thousand years have passed. And at one point, the, the current steward, his name is Denethor, he's asked by his son, how much time has to pass before a steward can assume the throne if the king never returns. 
Well, the steward of Gondor replies, a few years may be in other places of less royalty, but in Gondor, 10,000 years would not suffice. You know, the greater the king, the longer his servants wait gladly for his return. You know, I think Tokian was, was onto something there with that idea. Because here we are in the year 2022, almost 2,000 years ago, the disciples of Jesus of Nazareth, along with 500 eyewitnesses, claimed that their master was raised from the dead after being crucified by the rulers and powers of the day. And after 40 days with them, Jesus was taken up into heaven before their very eyes until a cloud hid him from their sight. And as they kept looking, two angels appeared and said to them, Why do you stand there looking at the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And so those disciples went on to spread this message about the Messiah who, who gave his life for sinners and who is one day coming back to reign. And now, nearly 2,000 years later, here we are, right? Christians all around the world are still awaiting the return of the king. You know, if Jesus doesn't come back in our lifetimes, do you think Christians will still be found waiting for his return in, you know, in, in the year 3,000, in the year 5,000? You know, for a lesser king, maybe his disciples would have given up after a few years. But for Jesus Christ, 10,000 years would not suffice. 10,000 years would not be too long to wait for so great a king. And so here in the year 2022, we await his return. Yes, 2,000 years have passed, but don't let that fool you. That doesn't, our waiting doesn't speak to his slowness or to his weakness. No, it speaks to his majesty. It speaks to his authority and his goodness far beyond what we can comprehend. That great king is coming. But when he comes, what will he find? Will we be ready for him? That's what, that's what we want to think about this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 35. You know, Luke 12 fits in this narrative of Luke's gospel as Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And in these chapters, we hear Jesus' teaching on what it looks like to follow him on the path of discipleship. Jesus has already told his disciples that he would be killed and buried and raised on the third day. Discipleship means that we each take up our cross and we follow this crucified Lord. But this rejection by man is not the end of the story. Now here in chapter 12, these parables tell about the return of the Son of Man to judge. Which means part of our discipleship to Jesus is that we're going to be ready for his coming. And we are going to be faithful with all that he has entrusted to us. And so the main question that we are confronted with here is, will you be ready for the return of Christ? How will Christ find you? And so when we look at this parable, 
we see some contrasting options for how Christ will find us when he returns. And the first contrast is this. Will Christ find us alert or asleep? Will he find us alert or asleep? That's, that's point number one. And we see this in verses 35 through 40. Luke 12, starting in verse 35. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him, and at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline a table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. Well, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Well, the scenario here is pretty clear. The master is away at a wedding feast, and he's going to be coming home late. But nobody knows when he will come. And so the main point of the parable here is that the servants have to be ready for him. Even while he's not there yet, they must be ready for his return. Jesus says, stay dressed for action. Literally, it's the phrase, gird up your loins. Uh, you know, it's hard to run and move quickly when you're wearing robes uh, as they would have in those days. So girding up your loins was the practice of gathering up your robes and wrapping them around your waist so that you would be ready to kind of spring into action, to run as soon as needed. Uh, these servants were to be alert, ready for action, even while they're waiting. And, and they're to, to keep the lamps burning, Jesus says. As, as the night wore on, they were to make sure that the house was lit, uh, that the logs were in the fireplace, that the, oils, the oil was in the lamps, that everything was ready for the master to return at any time even late into the night or early into the morning. Until finally the knock comes at the door and the master finally arrives and the servants are quick to open the door and welcome him in. These are the servants who are found alert and ready. But the opposite of all this is to be unprepared, to be asleep because it's so late in the night. And Jesus illustrates this with a different image in verse 39 the, the unprepared are like this owner of a house that has no idea that a thief is coming. They, they leave the house unguarded. They're in bed. The lights are out. And so the thief comes unexpectedly and makes off with his treasures. You know, had he known, of course he would have been ready, but, but as it is, he is unprepared. He is asleep. You know, these two parables describe what the servants are to be up to while the master is gone. And this parable teaches us that the disciples of Jesus are to be alert and ready during this time of waiting. They're to be expecting his return. You know, we live in this unique period of redemptive history where, where Jesus, the Messiah, has come. By his perfect life and death and resurrection, he has accomplished the work that was given him to do. He has been crowned the king of the universe. He has defeated sin and death. And yet, strangely, his 
kingdom here on earth has not yet been consummated. No, we, we live in this age where Christ is pouring out his spirit, and through the preaching of the gospel, he is gathering people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And though we have come to know Christ's saving reign, we are still those servants who are awaiting his return. And, and this has been true for 2,000 years. The book of Revelation ends with the prayer, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Right? The, the earliest Christians confessed this hope using the words of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who will come again to judge the living and the dead. And, and here in 2022, Baptists, in the, in the Baptist faith and message, we confess the very same hope. Right? It says, God in his own time and in his own way will bring the world to its appropriate end. According to his promise, Jesus Christ will return personally and, personally and visibly in glory to the earth. The dead will be raised and Christ will judge all men in righteousness. Uh, this is what we confess. Uh, this is the historic Christian hope. We, we don't just believe that the spirit of Jesus sort of lives on or that the teaching of Jesus is sort of manifested in our lives. No, we believe that Jesus rose from the dead physically and that he is actually coming back. That he is coming back personally, visibly, in glory to earth to judge and to reign. And while the master is gone, one of the marks of his true subjects are those who believe that the master is coming back, even as the hour drags late into the night. Even as we wait, however, Jesus makes it clear that no one knows when he will come. The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect, he says. Back in the early 1840s, uh, William Miller predicted that according to his calculations, uh, and, and reading the prophecies of Daniel, Jesus would come back by March 21st, 1844. Uh, he drew a huge following. They were known as the Millerites. And that day came, and that day went. And Miller decided, oh, I, I used the wrong calculations. <laughs> I, I had used the wrong calendar, so, so reset uh, April 18th, 1844. Well, April 18th came and went. And so Miller once again went back to the drawing table. He looked at his figures. Oh, he realized, oh, I made another mistake. Uh, no, now the date is October 22nd, 1844. And, and now people are like, okay, this is, this is going to be it. That's the right one. Third time's a charm. But then the day came and went. Uh, people had sold their businesses. They had sold their properties, gotten ready for that day. As one Millerite recorded, I waited all Tuesday, October 22nd, and dear Jesus did not come. I waited all the forenoon of Wednesday. I was well in body as I ever was, but after 12 o'clock I began to feel faint, and before dark I needed someone to help me up to my chamber as my natural strength was leaving me very fast. And I lay prostrate for two days without any pain, sick with disappointment." I suppose I would have been very sick with disappointment also if I had sold everything, right, to get ready for that day. Friends, being ready for Jesus' return does not mean trying to predict when he's going to come. 
because that's impossible. Uh, Jesus teaches us here that the master will come at a time we do not expect. So maybe your eschatology doesn't try to nail down a date like William Miller, and, th and that's a good thing. But I do think that sometimes we can try to overpredict when the end will come. You know, if your eschatology says something like, you know, before Christ returns, this political thing has to happen, or, um, or this event must take place, or all these 7,000 unreached people groups need to reach this state. And therefore, since that hasn't happened yet, I know that Jesus isn't returning today, right? No, if, if that's your eschatology talking, well, that, that's wrong, right? Um, Christians have always believed not only in the physical return of Christ, but the imminent return of Christ. Uh, and what that means is that we have to live as if he might return at any moment, even today. So what does that mean, to be, to be alert, to be ready for his return? Does that mean just standing around looking up into the sky? No, absolutely not. According to the New Testament, it means basically two things. It means holding fast to the gospel, and living in holiness and obedience to Christ. Uh, that's how you persevere, how you stay ready for his return. You know, Jesus warns us in the last days there will be all kinds of wolves, all kinds of false teachers who are going to lead people astray from the gospel. But the way you persevere is by holding fast to the message of Christ as he preached, as preached by the apostles. This message of salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, trusting in his substitutionary death for us, for sinners on the cross, and his resurrection uh, in complete victory over sin and death. To be ready for Christ's return means that we don't stray from this hope, but we build our lives on it. You know, how, how many tragic stories have I heard from people that I grew up with in church? Uh, loved ones who once professed faith in Christ but now have moved on to other hopes. You know, we live in a day when prominent ex-evangelicals are deconstructing their faith, offering classes to help others do the same in order to fit in with the times. If you do that, are you going to be ready to face the master when he comes? Or will you have so distorted his message that you won't even recognize him when he shows up? Oh, friends, you have to hold on to the faith once for all delivered to the saints as you wait for him. But it's not only about holding fast to the faith. It's, it's as we see in the New Testament, it's about living a life then of obedience to our master, a, a, a life of holiness. You know, every time you give in to sin and temptation, you are living as if Jesus is not coming back. We, we are living as if he is not going to judge the world and establish his reign of righteousness. In his second letter, Peter responds to the scoffers who ask, where is the promise of his coming? And Peter reminds them that God is not slow to fulfill his promise. No, he is being patient with sinners. And then he concludes with his exhortation to Christians. Since then, all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord? 
Brothers and sisters, are you living in such a way that you are hastening the coming day of the Lord? In such a way so that if Christ were to come, you would rejoice rather than be afraid. Friends, this is going to take perseverance. The, the, Jesus tells us the master is, is, could come as late as midnight or three in the morning. You, you're going to be tired. You're going to be tempted to think, he's never coming back. I'm so tired. It's, is it really even worth staying up? But you'd be wrong. No, it is worth staying up. This is why we all need to belong to churches. Right? As the writer of Hebrews says, let us not neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Uh, with each passing day, we know that the day is drawing near. So there is a growing urgency. As we gather week after week, we are involved in each other's lives, and we are helping one another to stay awake. Uh, it, it's, it's so much harder to stay awake when you're driving late at night all by yourself. Right? But if you've got somebody in the passenger seat there with you who can talk to you, you can, you can work together to keep each other awake, right? It's the same in the Christian life. Alone, it's so easy for us to grow lax, to grow careless spiritually. But if you have other Christians in your life who love you, who know you, who can lovingly say to you, hey, wake up, keep holding on to Christ, keep living in obedience to him, don't give up. So will Christ find us alert, or will he find us asleep? The second contrast that we see here is whether Christ will find us faithful or whether he will, fi whether he will find us foolish. Faithful or foolish. Look at the second parable, starting in verse 41. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us? Or for all. And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat, and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Well, this second parable begins with Peter asking a question. Hey, was this parable just for us, or is it for everyone here? You know, it sounds like Peter is especially concerned that people understood uh, that this parable is not just for the disciples, right, but for, for them too. You know, in other words, hey, Jesus, I appreciate what you're saying, but, but these people here really need to hear this, make sure they, can, they know that. And just as we would expect, Jesus turns the tables on Peter and gives another parable, one that highlights the particular accountability of those entrusted with authority. Once again, here, the, the master is absent, but he has, per, he has put a servant in charge of the other servants uh, to manage their food while he's gone. So this servant is an administrator. He's a steward. He, he's not free to do whatever he wants, but he's been given instructions. His job is to carry out the master's will. You know, this master 
cares for his servants while he's gone. He wants to make sure that they are well-fed and provided for. And insofar as this manager, this steward, is faithful, the entire household will be blessed. But in verse 45, this servant turns unfaithful. And notice, it all begins with a lie that he begins to tell himself. My master is delayed in coming. He's not coming back anytime soon. How do I even know he's coming back at all? You know, behind all of our unfaithfulness are lies that we are telling ourselves, are lies that we are believing. Now, freed from the truth, this servant begins to live out those lies. And what a wicked thing that he does. Rather than caring for the other servants, he begins to beat them, to abuse them. Rather than distributing their food, he hoards it for himself, and he gets drunk. Rather than carrying out his master's will, he now thinks of himself as the master. Friends, we live in a fallen world where servants like this are all too common. Most tragically, we have seen these kinds of servants even in the church, even within our convention. Pastors and church leaders who are supposed to love and feed Christ's sheep, they instead take advantage of them. They use them, and they refuse to protect them. And when it's all exposed, too often these leaders get away without much consequence, leaving the sheep battered and wounded. Well, no matter how much these foolish servants believe the lie, they are wrong. The master will return. And when he returns, the faithful servants, the oppressed servants will rejoice. And these foolish servants will be caught unaware and they will be exposed for the wicked servants that they are. You know, friends, we, we live in a culture that is growing increasingly suspicious of authority. As stories continue to come out of the abuse of authority, even in the church, but even, even more broadly, you know, a lot of Christians are beginning to wonder, can I even trust authority? Is, 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 isn't that the problem? Should, should we even have pastors and elders in the church? Won't that just result in more spiritual abuse? You know, what this parable teaches us is that the abuse of authority is a wicked thing, and God takes it with deadly seriousness. Christians of all people understand how wicked this kind of abuse is because it utterly misrepresents the rule of our master. You know, our master is not like that. He is good. God has established authority to be a representation of his authority, and foolish servants blaspheme God when they abuse the, the authority that they've been given. So insofar as the abuse of authority is being rightly exposed in our day, we rejoice. We praise God for that. At the same time, we have to realize that the solution to evil authority is not the abolishment of all structures of authority. No, it's rather the replacing of it with good, God-fearing authority. So, if evil authority exists in this world, it needs to be exposed 
And insofar as the Lord enables us, we need to work not, not to blow the whole thing up, but to replace it with those who fear God, those who will faithfully carry out good authority. You know, th- this is why this parable is being told. Peter, who would one day be a leader in the church, he needed to hear this. Many years later, Peter would write to his fellow elders these words, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. I know, I wonder if Peter had this parable in mind when he wrote those words. Now, some of Jesus' last commands to Peter was exactly this, feed my sheep. Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. Be that servant who distributes the food of God's word faithfully to, to God's people. Authority in this world, and even more in the church, exists for the flourishing and the blessing of God's people. Righteous, God-fearing authority is a gift for bringing protection and blessing and unity to God's people. And so there's a special word here for, for all of us here, right, who, who are called to exercise authority in the church and in the world. Right? If, if you're a pastor here, if you're an elder, if, you, if you're a deacon, if you're a Sunday school teacher, if you're a leader in the youth group, uh, if you're a discipler, if you work in children's ministry, and the list just goes on and on, you have been given a stewardship. Uh, you have been entrusted with a measure of oversight, uh, with, with formal and informal influence and authority. Are you being faithful with this? You know, we can critique other people and their poor use of authority, but how are we doing when it comes to wielding the, the authority that we have in our Sunday school class, in our youth group, in the elders' meeting? Uh, are those under your care flourishing? Do they praise God for your service to the church? Would the master be pleased with your work? You know, we see here the, in, in this parable that the servant's job was not to come up with his own plan, but he was to faithfully feed the servants just as the master had directed him, giving each their portion of food at the proper of time. So are you giving the riches of God's word to those under your care? Are they being blessed and nourished from the riches of our master's treasury under your ministry? Or are you just giving them your own ideas, right, your own anecdotes? You know, for the pastors of this church, we all want the church to grow. We would all love to see more people joining the church, but we realize that at the end of the day, it can't be about our own vanity. You know, we have to have a sense of stewardship for every single person here. Uh, an experienced pastor once wrote to one of his students who was discouraged by how small his church was. And the experienced pastor wrote this, I know the vanity of your heart and that you will feel mortified that your congregation is very small in comparison with those of your brothers around you. But rest assured yourself, but assure yourself on the word of an old man that when you come to give an account of them to the Lord of Christ at his judgment seat, you will think you have had enough. You know, rather than worrying about how big our platform is, how many people sit under our teaching, no, we should instead care way more 
about how faithful we're being with whatever he's entrusted to us, big or small. And God has established authority not only in the church, but also in the world, whether in marriage, whether in the workplace, whether in government or in parenting. Um, all these structures exist as a common grace to bring blessing to society. So if you're someone with authority out in the world, someone that God calls others to honor and to obey, in your use of your authority, don't make it hard for those under you. Uh, husbands, don't make it hard for your wives to trust you, to, to follow your leadership. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Love them as Christ loved the church. You know, parents, don't exasperate your children, right? Uh, tempting them to anger. No, raise them in a nurture and admonition of the Lord. Disciple them. Teach them patiently. Bosses, teachers, leaders, make submission to your authority a joy, not a burden. And whatever authority you wield, use it as a blessing and flourishing of others. Pray that you lead in such a way that people would praise God for his good care for them. And if you are someone who is under authority, pray for your leaders. Pray that God would bless them with the wisdom that they need to lead well. I pray that when Christ returns, he will find us not foolish, but faithful. And finally, number three, when Christ returns, will you be commended or will you be condemned? Commended or condemned? You know, for those who are found unfaithful, the return of the master is not good news. Uh, in the first parable, Jesus compares it with the coming of a thief who breaks in and steals all that he has. The image is even worse in the second parable. Look at verse 45. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect them and at an hour he does not know and will cut them to pieces and put them with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved the beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. The return of the master here is an end of all of the illusions of self-appointed authority. No, if there's any authority in this world, it is a delegated authority that comes from God. And the master will call everyone to account. And because this master who is amazingly gracious is also unwaveringly just and good, he will set all things right. He will not be bribed. He will not stand by while his servants are abused. No, those wicked stewards who once beat the other slaves will themselves be beaten. The punishment will fit the crime. You know, if you are someone here who has been unjustly treated in the world, in, in your life, like the servants here in this parable, by the very ones who are supposed to be working for your good, you need to know that the master is returning. He's coming back. Justice will one day be served, and your deepest cries and longings will be answered. You know, justice is never perfect here in this fallen world. 
but know that it will be perfect when Jesus returns. Injustice will not have the final word. And, and here we see that justice will be perfectly executed, right? We see here levels of punishment. Those who abused others, Jesus assigns the severest punishment of being cut into pieces and put with the unfaithful. What in the world does that mean? I don't exactly know, but that, I don't want to find out what that means. I mean, that image is gruesome and awful. For those who knew the master's will but did not get ready to obey, they will receive a severe beating. Those who did not know will receive a light beating. You know, again, I'm not exactly sure all that is going on here, especially in terms of what it means for sort of eternal punishment. But, but whatever it means, Jesus, what Jesus is teaching us here is that the coming sentence on the wicked will be weighty, but it will also be perfectly just. Uh, in the end, the judge of all the earth will do what is right. Sin will be punished according to what was done. And, and nobody at the end is going to complain, complain, hey, that's not fair. No, the, the cries of injustice will be addressed and satisfied perfectly. Because the master that we serve is a good and righteous master. And as those living here in the West we have to realize that sort of out of the whole world, we are among those uh, to whom much was entrusted, right, as we see here. Um, in the teaching that we received, in our access to Christian resources, in our material resources, in the, in the teachers and pastors and mentors in our lives, we all have been entrusted with much. And therefore, Jesus says, much will be required. You know, maybe you're thinking, this is hard. I'm not sure I'm up for this. I'm not sure I want to be a servant. I don't want to serve such a demanding master. You know, friends, it's true. that Our master will one day sit on the throne of the universe and judge all evil and all sin. But make no mistake, he is not a harsh master. He is an incredibly loving and generous master. Look at verse 37. Look at verse 37. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. Look down at verse 43. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Friends, this master is not like any other master you've ever known. It, it, it turns out that no matter how hard these servants have worked, no matter how long they have stayed up waiting for him, if they are faithful, then the outcome will be that they will be blessed. They will not come to the end and find themselves shortchanged for their service. No, they will be blessed beyond their wildest imaginations. You know, what a, what a generous and loving master this is. He doesn't just reward his servants from afar. No, for, for readily welcoming him home, this master will now have his servants sit at the table and recline, and he will serve them. 
Previously, the servants were told to gird their loins for service, but now we see that the master girds up his loins for service while his servants sit back at the table and feast while he waits on them hand and foot. You know, I watched, uh, well, my wife kind of made me watch Downton Abbey with her. Um, you know, I can't remember a, a scene where, like, Lord Grantham or the Dowager Countess, or however you say that, uh, served those servants, right? But, but here is the master serving his butler, right? He's serving those, those who wait on him hand and foot. You know, has such a thing ever happened? Here is the master refilling their cups and bringing out their favorite foods. This is no harsh master. This is a master who loves his servants. And in the second parable, the master rewards his servants not by giving them a raise. No, he, he entrusts them with all that he has by making them co-ruler, sharing in the dominion of the master over all that he has. You know, in the fallen world that we live in, God limits authority because he knows our sinful hearts. He knows how tempted we are to misuse authority. But when our master returns, sin will be no more. And we will reign with Christ. Whatever we have been entrusted with now will seem like child's play compared with the galaxies that he will entrust to us as we reign with him. Again, what earthly master has ever blessed his servants so richly? You see what's going on here. You are not awaiting the return of a cruel master who's just going to come down on you for all your failures. No, you're awaiting the return of a gracious master who loves you, who will eagerly and joyfully reward you with unimaginable blessings, with namely himself. Everything that belongs to him will be yours and you will be his. And it will be to our everlasting joy that we are found faithful. And you may ask, how can that be? How can I know that, that such a master exists who will love us so lavishly? Well, we know this because that's exactly how he loved us the first time he came. That's exactly how he loved us the first time he came. When Jesus was telling this parable, he didn't look like much of a master. If anything, he, he, he looked like a servant. When we look at his life, we see him pouring out himself for the love of the sick and the poor and the oppressed. Even though he was a rabbi, he did not misuse his authority as a teacher. No, he spent himself for his disciples and all those who came to him. And yet, even so, that's not the full extent of his service. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The truth is that we have all been unfaithful servants, every single one of us. We have all acted as if we are our own masters. We have all used others for our own advantage. And therefore, all of us deserve the just sentence of God for our rebellion. Exactly what we see here in this text. But Jesus Christ came the first time, not as a master, but as a servant. And as a servant, he performed the greatest act of service ever. He laid his life down on the cross, bearing the wrath of God that we deserved, dying in the place of sinners. Here, the faithful servant was a sign 
a place with the unfaithful, and he was cut to pieces. Jesus Christ died for sinners. Why? So that we, his beloved people, might go free. All this was done in obedience to his heavenly Father. And having exhausted then by his sacrifice the punishment of our sin, God raised him from the dead, exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name. And now Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, awaiting the day when he will return as the king to make things right. And now Jesus calls then every knee and every tongue to bow before him and to confess that he is Lord. And that call goes out to all of you, all of us here this morning. This is where readiness and faithfulness begins, by repenting of your sins and by trusting in what Jesus Christ has accomplished. Your only hope is not to run away from this master that's coming back. No, it's to run to him, to confess your sins, and to place your hope in him. If you are not a Christian here this morning, realize that it is not too late. Jesus has not yet returned. But make, make no mistake, he is coming, and he will call you to account. So will you be like that foolish servant and continue lying to yourself that you're in charge of your own life? Or, you, or will you believe in him and begin living a life of faithful obedience? Friends, how, however much it costs to follow Jesus, you will not regret it one bit. Especially on the day that you see him coming. Because if our master loved us so richly when he first came, should we be surprised then that he will love us again so richly when he returns? If our master has already given us his life, will he not also graciously give us all things? Oh, friends, we do not serve a cruel and hard taskmaster. No, we await the return of our Lord who loves us and who gave his life for us. And now, having been saved by him, we follow his example of humble, faithful, vigilant service until the day he returns. And we see how light our service was in comparison with all that he will bestow upon us. For such a great king, 10,000 years of waiting would not be enough to speak of his greatness. May we be faithful in waiting with the few years that we've been given. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, what a good king you are. What a gracious master. Oh Lord, who has ever heard of such a master who lays down his life for wicked servants to redeem them, to change them, and then who promises that he is coming to rescue them, to make all things right, and to bestow upon them such an unimaginable blessing. Lord, you make service to you light and easy in comparison with all that you've done for us. So Lord, give us that perspective. Lord, fill us with awe of all that you have done for us and make it our joy then to wait upon you and to serve your people faithfully until the day you return. We pray all this in the name of your Son. Amen.